Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The more I looked at it, the more evidence I had in my face that something was wrong. I and mean, we had children who, basically, I was running an alternative to custody program. And these children would turn up in the evenings after school, or if they were, you know, theoretically were at school anyway. And they hadn't eaten all day. And they were pretty well climbing the walls, you know. And so we were spending most of the evening trying to calm them down so we could work with them on an anti-offender program. And what happened was, you know, I first of all started saying, look, you know, you need something to eat. You know, I mean, these kids were pale, you know, jittery, showing all these signs of, you know, being basically hungry. And so we started off making sandwiches. And many of these children do not get anything like adequate nutrition. You know, I mean, what we found when we did a very small piece of work in Oxford, you know, with, with children who were disaffected, I mean, their diets were diabolical. An alarming amount of them, you know, were deficient in things like iron, selenium, zinc, omega-3. You know, and these nutrients are known to have psychoactive effects when they're deficient. You know, so again, you've got these kids going around town, carrying a knife or interacting with people in a way which is not perhaps what we might call normal or rational. And then, you know, ending up in in front of the criminal justice system for factors that they weren't aware of, you know, and being sentenced on that basis. Welcome back to Crime and Nourishment. In the previous episode, we heard about the crucial role that nutrition plays in brain development and behaviour. Certain essential nutrients that can only be found in the diet contribute to the formation of the brain and visual system. Children who are hungry or poorly nourished express more disruptive behaviours that significantly increase the likelihood of them being suspended or excluded from school. Furthermore, children who have been excluded from school are more likely to end up in prison. But what happens when they get there? And what is the role of nutrition in behaviour in prison? The voice you heard telling a remarkably similar story to the one we heard from Carmel McConnell is that of Dr Bernard Gesch. In 2002, he led a double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled trial that found that giving prisoners nutritional supplements for a minimum of just two weeks resulted in a 37% reduction in incidents of violence. This research, referred to as the Aylesbury study, should have triggered a revolution in the prison system. Yet, nearly 20 years later, and with violence in prison spiralling to the highest rates ever seen, this work and the replications that have followed have been ignored. 18 years after its publication and early into the UK's coronavirus lockdown, I sat down to a video conference with Dr. Gesh to hear more about the study and his experiences. A 37% reduction is striking, to say the least. At current levels, that could mean 11,000 fewer assaults and up to 3,000 fewer assaults on staff across the prison population. I wondered whether he was surprised by these results. No, because, you know, we went out of our way to do the Aylesbury study with as much care as possible to report, you know, what we, you know, what you see is what you get, you know. So in other words, we tried to do the work as carefully as we could to produce a clear answer, yes or no, does it work? Mm -hmm. And the 
the results were pretty emphatic, you know. And Aylesbury was a very suitable environment for that because it was a very stable prison population. We knew what the baseline rates of offending were before we started. Most of those prisoners were not likely to be moved. And so we had, you know, many of the people, we had data over about 18 months, a nine-month baseline, nine months taking supplementation. Still, a result like this tends to raise eyebrows, perhaps about errors in reporting or some other factor. To help reduce the risk of mistakes in reporting scientific studies, before it's published in a scientific journal, the research is sent out to other independent experts in the field to be double-checked. These outside experts usually add comments about the quality of the study, raise questions about anything that was unclear, and ask for more information if anything seems to be missing. Dr. Gesh's study went through this peer review process and more. We submitted ours for peer review left, right and centre before we ever went to a journal. You know, we took it to the then president of the Royal Statistical Society, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, we, we really worked very hard to make sure that technically our, our work was as good as we could get it. So the results were valid. And in fact, as we will hear later on, other research labs in different parts of the world have replicated these findings. In scientific research, replication is incredibly important. Again, it helps us to have confidence that the outcomes observed are due to the treatment. So why hasn't this research been acted upon? Perhaps it's too expensive. The irony is that to send someone to Holloway costs a fortune. You know, it's not exactly a cheap trip. Now, I can't remember the, the, the cost differential, but I mean, you know, I think in the days, well, I'd be throwing out a figure that I could be shot down on. I honestly can't remember how much it cost for someone to be sent to Aylesbury, but it was a, you know, a high security prison in those days. A 2016 Ministry of Justice document puts the cost of sending someone to a young offenders institute such as Aylesbury at just over £51,000 per year. Quite expensive. And also for the young adult age range, they were more expensive than an adult mm. prison. You know, mm. the cost of our approach, which we used rolling that, you know, if it had been rolled out into the entire prison service, because the minister at the time asked us to work out how much it would cost to do a national rollout, we reckon we could get the price of that supplementation well under ten p a day. So at just under forty pounds per year. That's a pretty cheap option. Yes, yeah. And also potentially it could prevent. This is a very easy way to prevent offending. I mean, you must have come across the, um, the um, Dutch hunger studies, mm. you know, where, you know, where they're, I think they're now on the second cohort and they're still seeing effects on behaviour. Now, if you're looking at lab animals, you know, if you introduce a nutritional insult, you can see changes over three generations. It takes three generations of improved nutrition to breed that out. So this is potentially highly cost effective because if you improve the nutrition now, you could be benefiting three generations. What are you afraid of then might be down the line for us if we don't sort this out now? Well, I think if you if you if you look at the figures for mental illness, for example, it has overtaken heart disease as the single biggest cost across Europe now. It was predicted that children's mental health problems would double from 1980, and I mean I think we're well ahead of that curve already. The fact is that you know if you continue to provide suboptimal diets, generally things are going to start going downhill. Why then are we not doing this? I wondered whether it was the implications of this research that were a barrier to implementation. Does it open up a can of worms in terms of criminal defence and sentencing? Actually, it doesn't, because if it was done in a responsible way, if you use normative data and link it to, say, for example, how much someone deviates from agreed norms with agreed statements that could be made against nutrient deficiencies and these 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 categories you know then you've actually got 
for the first time some science-based guidelines on which to mitigate and that's what i was you know saying evidence-based mitigation it wouldn't actually be, be that difficult to do you know but it would mean that you would have measured rational claims that could be made in mitigation for factors that the person was not aware of it's not going into a court and you know putting forward you know a kind of fanciful idea and i mean i've sat in i don't i hate to think how many court cases over the years you know where you know a barrister or a solicitor is putting forward a defense and just puts forward a proposition in the hope that you know the magistrates might feel it's plausible and generally the the game is you watch the people's fate you know the magistrates or the judges faces to see how they're taking it on board yeah here you could refer to bodies of evidence you know in the same way as when you come into a and e or whatever you know and they check your vital signs you've got some normative data to see how you diverge from that that actually yeah, right. It'd be a fair bit of work to take it on, but it's rational, it's evidence-based, and it can be revised in principle. In fact, action has been taken on the results of a replication of this work that took place in the Netherlands. In 2009, a researcher named App Zalberg conducted his own double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled trial and found a 34% reduction in reported incidents of violence in the group taking supplements. As a consequence, the Dutch Ministry of Justice improved prison nutrition. One of the things he told me was, you know, I mean, I would love to have been in his position because, you know, the people that got the statistics, they hadn't come across it before, but they sent it to their statisticians who basically were, you know, saying, you know, this is, this is pucker, you know, this is good stuff. They also understood the purpose of randomization. So he said he, he, he entered the area as a cynic and then realized he was in a world of hard science. And what they also quickly realized was that they were going to have to make major cuts in the prison service over there. And they realized that this could be a tool to not only make the cuts, but improve the standards of the provision. So within three months, they got to that point by the we had been banging on about that for, by that stage, nearly 20 years with the Home Office. Which tells um, us that it's not about the data, it's about the attitudes towards the data. <laughs> You're tempting me into dangerous territory, <laughs> I mean, I, I could give you some anecdotes, believe me, but... You know, I, I kind of like consider myself retired nowadays and I want a peaceful life. Where I think App was incredibly lucky was that the, the Dutch were able to quickly understand the science. And, you know, they got it. I don't feel I've hung my boots up just yet, you know. I, I, but when you keep bashing your head against a brick wall, you know, eventually you, you, you forget tired of the headache you know and we made a lot of progress you know we did incredibly well in a lot of ways and i'm enormously grateful to many 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 distinguished people that put their reputations on the line and helped allowed us to get this work done but believe me it was not easy sensing his frustration i asked whether undertaking this work has taken an emotional toll it took a toll. You know, well, I think on, on my health, um, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the charity that I, stuck, you know, that I was involved with for many years, I mean, you know, went nearly went under a few times. I always was mildly amused when Jamie Oliver was saying, you know, there'd been a change of minister. I'm thinking, a change? You must have got to about ten. And I tell you, every time there was a change, it was almost like going back to the starting point. One or two were actually very helpful. And then they move. And then you go back to things being not so helpful. It's just this very strange situation where, you know, 10 pence a day per prisoner was a budget issue and they couldn't think about the potential savings in other areas. And on a human level, I mean, you know, some of the prison officers you know, had got 
terrible injuries from assaults. One poor guy was pensioned off because he was twice attacked at the surgery and hit with a stainless steel tray around the head, you know. And so, you know, you've got also that, that whole, you know, health and safety issue about, you know, prisoners. I mean, you know, we, we found as well that there were effects on rates of self-harm. Now, in the case of nutrition, the only risk of giving these people a better diet is better health. When is there going to be a bad time to introduce a healthier diet? There isn't. You know, so it's a very low-risk approach. It's a very gentle and compassionate approach. But the problem is that if you introduce something like this and it takes root, then it also means that to some extent, these young people who we consider to be, you know, unworthy, need to be made an example of blah, 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 um, are also in some ways victims of factors that they weren't aware of. Could this be the problem? We have a criminal justice system that is based on the idea of volition. That is that everybody knows the difference between right and wrong And therefore, if you do something wrong, it was your choice to do so. And thus, you are deserving of your punishment. What this research does is to raise very serious questions about the very nature of volition if someone's brain doesn't have the basics that it needs to function properly. And while the Dutch Ministry of Justice seems willing to acknowledge the importance of nutrition for proper, healthy brain function, For some reason, it seems the UK MOJ does not. In a later episode, I speak to some former judges about why it is that the British criminal justice system chooses to ignore this and other established neurological evidence. But for now, back to Dr Gesh. I actually found um, an article that I wrote which actually went into the Prison Service Journal in 2009, Handbook in 2009 this was something i I wrote with um lord ramsbottom and i mean you know it it, uh you know so here's here's the opening gambit you know the classic justice model assumes that behavior is entirely a matter of free will this assists the often difficult task of sentencing but what is less clear is how one can exercise that free will without involving the brain and since the brain is a physical organ how can the brain function properly without an adequate nutrient supply straightforwardly it can't crime may often be described as brainless but we should not take that literally you know and i mean this is really what gets to the point and interestingly nutrition sits at the midpoint of that argument because it has profound influences on a social structure as well as profound influences on the brain's operating environment yet we have made massive changes in modern diets in a relatively short space of time with little or no systematic testing for effects on behavior so the kid you know who goes around with a knife um, and has got limited ability to control her impulses or um, has got marginal executive function because excluded kids are often excluded from any organized form of nutrition you know we will happily spend vast resources to put them in prison rather than checking systematically whether their nutrition is okay you know and we have a legal profession that will happily take a punt on a speculative piece of mitigation and say, oh, you know, like the Twinkies defence, the fact that this guy was eating, you know, the Twinkies bars as evidence that he was depressed, you know, rather than actually saying, well, look, you know, how far does this person deviate from what we consider to be an acceptable standard for nutrition as far as we know in terms of how it affects the brain and behaviour. Mm. This is normative data that could be brought into court. It's what I called and proposed evidence-based mitigation. Much of mitigation is just basically um, you know, taking a chance with the magistrates or the judges to see if the argument appeals. You could produce a handbook of claims that could be made which are based on actual science. And this is something I proposed years ago, you know. So you then got an issue about whether we're dealing with a system that wants effectiveness 
or whether it wants retribution. You know, and of course, you remember that the law is entirely um, operationalized around this concept of volition. What happens if you have what Derek Bryce Smith used to call non-sensory influences, factors that could influence you, that you're not aware of? You wouldn't expect that, for example, you know, someone who's completely out of the head on drugs would be, you know, the kind of be able to respond rationally necessarily to a given situation. If you have um, someone who's on an extremely poor diet, you know, who's got poor um, glycemic control, etc., etc., their ability to think rationally could be equally undermined, but for factors that they don't know about. It's something which has been so obvious, it's been missed. It seems extraordinary that, that we would happily send children to prison before we actually check if they've been properly nourished and whether their brains can, have got some possibility of functioning and, you know, in response to their surroundings in an appropriate manner. If you've got people who are behaving um, outside what are considered to be normal social boundaries, then a very simple thing to do is to, is to have a look at the operating environment of the brain. A very simple and gentle approach is, is to see if normalizing their nutrition has any effect. And the evidence from our study, from our study, from various other pieces of research now suggests it does. Professor John Stein is the Emeritus Professor of Physiology in the Department of Physiology, Anatomy and Genetics at Magdalen College, Oxford. He also works for the Dyslexia Research Trust and the Institute for Food, Brain and Behaviour. We met in the choir room in Magdalen College, which we later discovered was double booked. Following an interruption, we get back to talking about some of Professor Stein's early work on magnocells, a special type of cell found especially in the visual system. Where are the magnocells situated in the brain? Well, all over, but in, in particular in the visual system, they're um, contributing to the part of the visual system that responds to movement in the outside world and therefore enables your eyes, for instance, to follow a moving target. Would that mean that magnet cells are also linked to, I'm thinking, the way that we, that anxiety and has a, a, a physiological effect that we move from panoramic vision to kind of phobial vision and much higher acuity and that that's associated with enhanced arousal, mm -hmm. would that incorporate magna cells in some way or? Oh definitely because um, uh, the magna cells contribute hugely to attention so if I'm attending to you uh, the system that first uh, helps me train my attention and then my eyes on you is this magna cellular system mm -hmm. and uh, it is responsible for is the first system that's responsible for arousal when you wake up. So another thing that giving omega-3s does is increase your arousal and your ability to concentrate. And in your study with children's reading, was it children who had a baseline deficit of omega-3s that saw the improvement or did? Well, it, it, it was deliberately, it was deliberately, in fact, um, Alex Richardson did most of this work. Mm -hmm. um, it was deliberately focused on children who came from very disadvantaged backgrounds, and we know that mm -hmm. they are low in omega-3s. Mm -hmm. In fact, in that study, we didn't measure the omega-3 changes, but in subsequent ones, we have. Mm -hmm. When did you first hear about the, the influence of nutrition on, on violence or on offender behaviour? Well, it, it, it was in two ways. I was asked to go to Winchester Prison uh, to help an actual inmate who was trying to help uh, other prisoners to learn to read. Because, as you know, something like 75% of prisoners in jail can't read. So I went down and gave advice and... Uh, uh, 
One of the things I suggested was improve the diet, mm -hmm. but that was before I had really much information about this. But the other thing was that Alex Richardson introduced me to a guy called Bernard Gesch, mm -hmm. who just completed a study in um, Aylesbury Young Offenders Institute, uh, in which he showed that um, giving young offenders uh, omega-3s, minerals and vitamins, and in fact he was more interested in minerals and vitamins, uh, actually decreased the rate of offending, and these were pretty um, prolific offenders, mm -hmm. by, well, in the case of, uh, in the case of um, serious offences, violence, it, re it reduced the rate of offending by 37%, simply by improving, giving them supplements of uh, omega-3s, minerals and vitamins. And I know from my time working in prisons that violence, whether that is self-harm, suicide attempts, violence towards staff, aggression towards other inmates, is an enormous issue in prisons. Mm. It's one of the biggest issues in terms of staffing and staff morale, keeping staff on. Mm. Uh, staff don't want to be there, they're going to be at risk. Um, it's one of the biggest issues in terms of managing the, what they call the regime, because if someone is on suicide watch, for example, it means taking a member of staff from the hospital wing or from somewhere else to be with that prisoner 24 hours mm. a day. Mm. So it affects staffing levels, but also the amount of visits that other members of, of the staff team can do. Um, but also it kind of just escalates the amount of tension and hostility and worry and anxiety generally in the prison. So it's absolutely extraordinary that something as simple and cheap and low risk as a supplement, as a nutritional supplement. I couldn't agree more. Uh, but uh, uh, we discovered not only in the young uh, in uh, the Ellsbury study, but also in the uh, uh, subsequent study that we may talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, very often, the staff are extremely antagonistic to the whole idea. Um, and I don't really know why, because actually, uh, I remember one of the staff at the Aylesbury was complaining that he was putting on weight because he didn't have to run to so many incidents. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was worried about his waistline, <laughs> his loss of physical activity. Absolutely. Um, when you say antagonistic, what was your, what do you mean, what was your sense? Well, one of the things was that it did require them to do a bit more work because uh, they were often uh, making sure that the people took their mm -hmm. supplements. Uh, but I'm afraid I got this, the, the feeling from some of them that they didn't think we should be helping prisoners, mm -hmm. we should be punishing them. Now that certainly doesn't apply to all staff, but uh, okay, uh, quite often you felt that was what was behind the antagonism. Well, I'm wondering to myself why the outcomes of this research haven't been generalised or utilised in any kind of serious way. I'm wondering whether that's part of the, the issue, which is, is it, are you being a soft touch? Are you just being too nice to people who have done bad things? And shouldn't they just take their punishments for their behaviours? Yeah, and I think that extends right up to governors because, well, I've, I've been in sort of quite close contact with four governors in the four prisons that I've actually worked in. And uh, two of them uh, were, well, all four, all four prisons began with a governor who was extremely um, happy for us to do what we wanted to do, was what I'd call a, a, a liberal governor. Um, but subsequently, you know, governors change every two or three years, don't they? And all four uh, got governors that were not so keen. And in fact, uh, in the case of two of the prisoners, that meant that we had real problems 
with the studies we were trying to do because that those governors took over in the middle of our studies. So this is the three prisons yeah. study, which well, you've described as the most difficult project I've ever undertaken in 50 years of research. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's not too traumatic for you, can we talk about that? So how well, do you... I, I have to be careful because, um, well, I won't name any names. No. Maybe that's the thing. The first problem was that uh, in order to get the study accepted by uh, the prison service, we had to go through a thing called PQAB, the Prisons Quality Assurance Board, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's still called the same thing, but um, uh, its its remit was to make sure that uh, the uh, research going on in a prison or prisons uh, what came up to certain standards. Um, but uh, we ran, ran up against a, an individual who was convinced that our design was not the best for the prison uh, and basically insisted that the study... We wanted to give the active pills uh, for three three or four months. They wanted it four months, but they wanted it to be as certain as possible that all the prisoners enrolled stayed for four months. Okay. Now, that seems reasonable, and that would be what you do for a, um, a drug, mm -hmm. but it was completely um, un, un, inappropriate for a prison, mm. because as you know, prisoners get moved around all the time, uh, in many cases, you don't know how long the sentence is going to be. Uh, it, it is almost always uh, the, the amount of time that prisoners stay is only about half what they were sentenced for, and so on and so forth. If so to be sure, yeah. So to be sure that we had them in for four months, which was this re requirement, we had to effectively. Uh, only take prisoners who were had been sentenced for a year or more. They also insisted that we had a two-week run-in where we tested whether or not the prisoners were actually taking their pills, whether the pills had disappeared. Mm -hmm. But actually we were able to test that anyway because we were uh, taking blood, so in most of them, or, or many of them, so we could tell whether they had taken them. Uh, but those two things, the run-in and the um, requirement for four months, uh, meant that we reduced our potential uh, volunteers by, we reckon, about three quarters. Gosh. Because most people only get sentenced for less than a year. And it, of course, ruled out remand prisoners because we don't, you don't know how long they'll be sentenced for. And those two constituencies, as it were, um, were make up the majority of prisoners. In practical terms, this stipulation greatly reduces the number of participants who would be eligible for the study. And it's interesting when we compare it to the Aylesbury study, which found an effect of treatment after a minimum of just two weeks. The second and... Uh, potentially more damaging thing was that uh, uh, NOMS, that is the National Offender Management Service, re-rolled, as they call it, i.e. moved from uh, the prisons that we were working in, something like 350 of our prisoners after we had randomised them to the treatment, and that meant that we couldn't follow them up because we didn't know where they'd gone. Anyway, we didn't have the personnel to go to all the various prisons they might have gone to. So it was, we lost 300 prisoners that way. So people who were already in the trial yeah. already started taking... Already had started. This is another significant blow to the study. When running clinical trials, the more people you test the treatment on, the more confident you can be of the results. So losing 300 participants like this could have been catastrophic. 
That had two effects. One is that re-rolls caused the whole atmosphere in a prison to get worse, <laughs> more, more unsettled. Secondly, because the new prisoners that we had to recruit in order to try and make up the numbers were therefore in the prison system for a much shorter time than we were used to, we had less accurate knowledge of their offending rate. Mm -hmm. Those two things together made it the most difficult study I've ever done. Yes. That's enormous disruption. What had been your intended number of participants? What did you hope Our intended were? number was a thousand okay. so uh, or more and it out. looked perfectly easy to do uh, but those the conditions uh, put on us by PQAB and then NOMS reduced it. So in the end, we only got 750. And of those, 300 were newcomers, as it were. We didn't have enough prior information about their offending rate. And did you take these concerns to NOMS, to, to the governors, to say that this is disrupting? Yeah, we, of course we did, but by the time this happened, the governors and the two prisoners that I'm referring to, mm -hmm. the ones who were trying to help moved on and the new ones had taken over. And we were only told literally three days before this was going to happen that it was going to happen. So we didn't have much opportunity. And anyway, we had no power to stop it. By that time, it was, we were told it was... It was a, a, a done thing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. After all the effort it would have taken to get this study set up, I wondered what his emotional response was to this disruption. Despair. <laughs> Despair and fury. <laughs> and I think it says a lot for the people doing the study, because I wasn't myself to it doing much of the actual recording, as it were. Uh, it says a lot for them that they did get, in the end, 750 mm. prisoners through the system. Uh, but it added greatly to the noise. So when... We finally uh, were able to do the analysis. We found that we had reduced the rate of offending in those who were uh, received the active pills uh, uh, by uh, twelve percent in the case of all offences, or eighteen percent in the case of violent offences, which was still significant uh, and still worthwhile but it was considerably less than we hoped for and we expected from a previous work. I mean, not only us, but by that time, as, uh, people in Holland had shown that you could achieve 30% reductions. 
It's worth, I think, highlighting that an 18% reduction in violence simply through nutritional supplementation is still very impressive and would still equate to around 6,000 fewer assaults and just under 2,000 fewer assaults on staff per year. I think it adds to all the reasons that I was talking to you about earlier about why it's so difficult to make this kind of study work <laughs> mm. and why it's so difficult in, after you've had all those problems why it's so difficult to persuade people that actually there's truth in the outcome. The sociability issue is important when we're thinking about yeah. antisocial behaviour yeah. as one of the pathways into young offending and offenders and, and then adult offending. By the way going back to the three prison studies one of the things that came out uh, strongly uh, in uh, it was that the sociability of the prisoners who received the active pills, um, as assessed by the staff, uh, improved greatly. Yeah. And I guess prison as an environment, as a, I mean, it's not quite a microcosm of society, but it's an environment where people are close together in close quarters. You're unable to leave the environment, and therefore actually sociability is quite an important Oh, it's skill. very important, yeah. So, if, in the best of all worlds, what would have been your hope for the outcomes of your research and similar research? Well, there's now so much research, I mean, not just us, but also Holland, there's a guy called Schoenthaler in the States, and. Uh, rain in the states as well all have shown uh, that improving nutrition improves new, uh, uh, prisoners sociability and hence their behavior um, so ideally of course what we'd like to do is roll it out in all prisons and what in 10 years time would you like to be in the process of happening? What are you advocating for? Well, I think all prisoners, or at any rate, all prisoners who are uh, come from disadvantaged backgrounds, should, as a matter of course, be given uh, supplements uh, for, the, for a month or two. I would say three months, actually. Um, because we know they don't do any harm, and we know they can do good. And that can achieve a change in nutrient levels, a step change, quickly. Uh, then, uh, at, during that time, they should all receive education about um, how to uh, eat uh, healthily mm -hmm. and uh, to, how, to, how to source and cook uh, food that is healthy and nutritious uh, and cheap. <laughs> and, Tasty. So this recording will go out to mostly public. Mm -hmm. What would you want them to know? I want them to know that the brain is your most important organ. It's obvious to me, but it's not to everybody. That your brain can only work properly if it's receiving the right, correct nutrients, um, which are omega-3s which best come from fish, uh, some omega-6s which we've got plenty of anyway, so I would never worry about omega-6s, minerals which come mainly from fruit and vegetables, uh, and vitamins which ditto come from fruit and vegetables, except for B12 and, uh, which comes mainly from animals. And that's basically the message, fish, fruit and vegetables. The NHS recommends two portions of fish, of which one should be oily. Well, that's too little. What would you say? Well, at least two portions of oily fish, and I would say more, three. Mm. But the reason for that, of course, that, uh, uh, that caution is that people worry about the mercury. But the risk of mercury is so much less than the risk of not having omega-3s. I, I would say it was was really irrelevant. How much oily fish do you eat? Uh, I eat a lot of salmon, a lot of mackerel, a lot of... <laughs> uh, I probably eat it 
uh, oily fish at least three times a week, if not four. Adrian Rain is a professor of criminology and psychiatry in the Department of Criminology and in the Department of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. In January 2020, his group published a randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of the effects of three months of omega-3 supplementation at a Young Offenders Institute in Singapore. They found a significant reduction in impulsive aggression that persisted up to six months after the end of treatment. This represents another international replication of the original 2002 GESH study. As with those previous papers, there were no adverse events, that is to say, no negative side effects of supplementation. At the time of our conversation though, those results had not yet been published, so we weren't able to discuss them on the record. Here we talk about his earlier work, a longitudinal study of the effects of early enrichment in childhood on later antisocial behaviour and criminality. Thank you so much for making the time. I guess I was interested first about how you got into this area um, and what, yeah. Yeah, what was your, what compelled you? I do research in a country called Mauritius, um, oh. which is a tropical island in the Indian Ocean. And I've been working there since 19, um, 1988 is the first time I started working in Mauritius. And I, I, I'm still working in Mauritius to, oh. to this day. Um, still have a NIH grant to um, pursue research out there. Um, and really as part of the Mauritius project, what had occurred is that some of the children were given um, an environmental enrichment from ages three to five years. So these are community children in Mauritius. Mm -hmm. And um, some of them were allocated, as I say, to this enrichment. It, 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 there was quite a bit in the enrichment, but it largely consisted of, well, the things we emphasized were really three main things. First of all, there was um, better nutrition. There was more physical exercise and a cognitive stimulation. There was actually more sleep as well, but I, but I haven't really emphasized that. Um, what we did is, and then the rest of the children, I mean, that was, they were randomly assigned to that enrichment. And then they were compared to the rest of the uh, children in the study. So altogether we had um, 100 in the enrichment. Mm -hmm. And it was about 350 in the control group. And we followed them up to age 11 and we, me we measured EEG, the electroencephalogram, mm -hmm. and found that the kids who had the enrichment had more enhanced brainwave activity. I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with EEG, but they had mm -hmm. um, a reduction in slow wave EEG. So um, that, that means that the brains are more alert and more aroused. Okay. Um, we also measured something called, called skin conductance orienting. Mm -hmm. um, it's a measure of attentional processing to tones played over a pair of headphones. And again, we found that the kids who went into that enrichment showed greater attentional processing. Mm -hmm. And then we followed them up to age 23, and we found, again, that the kids who went into the enrichment showed, uh, always, it was, I think, a 34% reduction in criminal offending at mm -hmm. age 23. So, um, you know, one of, so this enrichment was having some positive effect, and we looked back, and, um, we thought that at the time that, um, you, you know, we were, we were, of course there's quite a bit in the enrichment and the question mm -hmm. is, well, which element is it that really had the effect? And we thought it might be the enrichment because um, what I did is I went back and um, I found out more exactly what was happening in the enrichment and comparing the diet of the kids who went into the enrichment to the diet of kids we didn't go into the enrichment. And in, in the five-day week, I saw that the kids in the enrichment had, um, on average, two extra portions of fish per week compared to the control group. So it was that, ultimately, that put me on to the idea that, well, it could have been the fish, um, the enrichment, that that could have accounted for the beneficial results. So really, that was the starting point, I would say. Were you surprised by 
the results. So you followed these children up to, to 23 years old and found oh. this quite profound reduction in criminality. Were you expecting oh. that or were you surprised? Did it feel like an anomaly? Well, we're hoping for that. <laughs> I, mean, I think that was a, that was perhaps a, that really a, a surprise. I think I wouldn't have necessarily thought I'd get we'd get such effects way out into adulthood. I suppose, by the way, the other issue. I mean, what also is the case is that um, we found that the kid that kids with poor nutrition at age three they were more likely to be antisocial at ages eight years 11 years and also 17 years so i think that also is a reason that put us onto this i mean that, that so we, we published all, all of these studies um but but i think that's it, it it's, it's the confluence of number one poor nutrition is a risk factor for antisocial behavior and aggression but number two an enrichment that included better nutrition has beneficial effects so this was the the research that kind of launched your further interest into the impact of early life early nutrition on later social behavior yes yeah it did because at the time at around 2002 when i sort of analyzed the data and um got the results out. Now, I was in Mauritius at the time. I was getting um, I was getting my flight back. I was flying back, actually, to, uh, I routed through London. Um, and it, in the airport at Mauritius, they had a small bookstore, and I'm saying really small. And on one of the shelves, there were books that were in English. And there was very few books. Let me try and imagine how many books there'd be in English. Maybe it'd be about about thirty books in English, mm-hmm. something like that. It was really small shelf. Could have been a little bit more, but not much more than about thirty or so. One of the books was on omega three, hmm. and um, it, I, I've actually got it in my study back in Philadelphia. Can't remember the exact title now, but um, it was. Yeah, it was a book all on omega-3 and about the beneficial effects. And I think that was what, what also, and so I bought that book and I read it on the plane. And I think that also stuck in my mind about of all the things that happened in the enrichment, could it be that it's this omega-3 that's having an effect? And so that was way back then. And then that led me actually to trying to do a study on omega-3 in Mauritius, an initial one. and. We, we, I remember we got supplies from, I, I think it was Norway, but I'm not quite sure. But for some, I can't remember quite what happened, but for some reason we just, the study just ne- never took off. We, we never got it implemented. I think I've only got myself to blame for that, that, you know, I was just too stretched and, mm-hmm. and yet we'd gone quite some way. I mean, I did eventually do a study on, on Omega-3 in Mauritius, which I published in 2015. So I eventually got around to doing something, but but really the seeds and the ideas came very much earlier than that. In 2015, Professor Rain and his team published a paper in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry. In this randomised placebo-controlled trial, two groups of 100 children aged 8 to 16 drank a fruit drink every day for six months. In the treatment group, the drink was enriched with one gram of essential omega-3 fatty acids. The results were in line with what we've heard already, that supplementation reduced antisocial behaviour in children. Fascinatingly though, in this trial, supplementation was also associated with improvements in the parents' behaviour, so there appeared to be knock-on positive effects of the shifts in the children. What was it like conducting that research? Was it straightforward? Yeah, it was very straightforward and... um... I have a very good uh, team out in Mauritius and um, I think what you see there is that we get two effects um, because both groups are getting the fruit juice drink Mm -hmm. every day that they think contains omega-3 and what we do get there is that we get a placebo effect where both groups come down during treatment Mm -hmm. But, but after the treatment finishes the control group 
the placebo group go back to where they came from in terms of antisocial behavior, mm-hmm. whereas the uh, omega-3 group uh, continue de- their decline. Um, so there's two things really happening there. And then I think you see in that paper, what interests me is the fact that the kids who got the omega-3, whose antisocial behavior went down, mm-hmm. their own parents' mm. antisocial behavior also decreased. Um, that was something I, I didn't a priori anticipate. And, and we don't really know why that is. I mean, it, it could, I mean, I, I think what we discussed is that it could be, you know, reciprocity between parents and children, mm-hmm. that children affect their parents' behavior just as much as parents affect their children's behavior. Mm-hmm. And that if a child, child's behavior improves that the, and the child is more easy to deal with, then maybe the parents themselves chill out and with their own um, irritable antisocial behavior also declines. I mean, so that could mm-hmm. be one reason. Oh, but the other reason that we, we couldn't test was that maybe the sort of antisocial parents steal their kids' omega-3 jet drink and they take the omega-3, not the child, and it's the omega-3 that's reducing mm. the parents' antisocial behaviour. We, we, we took blood on the cha- children to document the increase in omega-3, but we never thought of taking blood from the parent. So we couldn't really test between those two competing ideas of why it is that the parents' antisocial behavior is going down. But what it's led to is me doing a new study in Mauritius, which is what I'm doing now, which is where I'm, uh, and this is an NIH-funded study, which is where I'm giving, it's a two-by-two design, where I either give the child omega-3 or not, mm-hmm. and I give the parent omega-3 or not. Okay. And with the idea that potentially the greatest improvements will come where it's both parent and child taking the omega-3. Have you started recruiting for that trial? Oh yeah, that, mm. that's underway. Oh, we're, um, it's going really well. I mean, we've got, as before, we're having lower attrition. Um, let's see, we must be... I think we have all the data in after the first three months, but but this is going to go on for oh, at least a year. Um, I mean, I won't have results on, on it for at least another year, mm-hmm. probably longer. Mm. That will be fascinating because one of the, the areas of concern is in when we're thinking about children's behaviour and risk of acting out or externalising behaviours is the family environment and what we call mm. at-risk families. Yeah. And the one of the concerns certainly as a clinician is thinking about not putting all of the emphasis on the individual for outcomes that might be related at least in part to the environment you know whether that is the overall nutrition environment or the conditions in family or poverty or housing Um, so this could be a really fascinating intervention into perhaps a very you know accessible intervention one that's low risk, that might actually help improve the overall environment in, in terms of the quality of the relationship between the parents and the children. I, I think that's very much our thinking. And also, um, you know, in addition to measuring the primary caregiver's behaviour and the child, we're also measuring the behaviour of the spouse of the primary caregiver, just to see if there's any overflow to the wider family. Oh, I will look forward to um, finding <laughs> more out of that. Well, well, it could yet be another study with significant results that uh, sinks like a stone. Uh, which is the thing, and this has been a common theme that's emerged in my other other conversations. So I've spoken with Dr. Alex Richardson. I was speaking with uh, Bernagesh tomorrow, John Stein, Julia Rutledge. All of these researchers who are really working extraordinarily hard to produce robust RCTs, high quality, rigorous research that seems to go nowhere. Mm. What are your thoughts as to why that is? Well, um, let me think. Um, I, 
you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any very clear answer to your question. It's a mm-hmm. very good question, and I don't, I can't profess to have the the definitive answer to it. But I suppose a number of things come to mind. I think one thing is that um, fish is too simple mm-hmm. that people will say, well. Antisocial behavior is very complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and what fish, you know, fish for felons, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a fishy story, isn't it? You know, it can't quite be that simple. Um, I think what we're interested in and excited about are new things, new techniques, new approaches, um, which show promise. I think what we want is some sort of intellectual buzz from a solution to these difficult problems. And fish is way too simple. You know, it's the sort of thing that your grandmother would have told you. You know, fish food is brain food. Yeah, that's what should help people. But so I wonder. I wonder if part of it is that it's too too much in your face. It's too everyday. It's too mm-hmm. commonplace. It's too um, simple. That, that can't be a simple solution to complex societal problems like violence. Mm. I wonder if that's sort of part of it. I think another part of it, at least with respect to crime, violence, antisocial behavior, is that historically, biological approaches have been very much swept under the carpet. The main emphasis in the study of crime is the social environment. You know, it's um, bad neighborhoods, it's bad housing, maybe poor schooling, uh, racial discrimination, poverty, all these things have been spotlighted. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. No, quite opposite, that these are factors that are involved. Um, But with biological research, then I think the, the primary stakeholders within criminology, who are sociologists, um, are a bit worried that the spotlight, if we shine the spotlight more on omega-3 and things like that, that perhaps, perhaps the fear is that we'll stop worrying about important social problems that need to be fixed. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly true in terms of the whole field of a biological approach to crime. I mean, my whole lifetime research for 42 years now has been on biological approaches to crime, violence, and antisocial behavior in kids and adults. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a lot of resistance from the discipline to biological approaches. Um, and, you know, nutrition is biological, mm-hmm. isn't it? I think what I'd like people to understand, I mean, putting it very simply, is that part of bad behavior are bad brains. That um, a lot of my research has been on the neurobiology of antisocial behavior. Of course, it's not everything. Of course, the social environment is important. Um, but that one of the causes of antisocial violent criminal behavior is brain dysfunction. And if that's true, and I think at this point in time, it's, uh, there's no question from brain imaging research that mm-hmm. this is the case. And if this is true, then it stands to reason logically that if we can do things, whatever the approach is, to improve the brain, then we'll improve behavior and reduce antisocial behavior. And I think omega-3 is one benign, simple approach to trying to do something about the problem of crime and violence. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, we'll hear more about the profound influence of food and nutrients on the brain and behaviour, including enhanced protection from post-traumatic stress. I hope you'll join me then. This podcast includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust. It was written and hosted by me, Kimberly Wilson, produced by Sarah Hashem, with music composed by Juan Iglesias. You can find full details of all episodes and contributors at kimberlywilson.co forward slash crime and nourishment. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 